Alright, back again. Uh, now into chapter 3 of Anti-Oedipus. So, savages, barbarians, civilized men. This chapter is long, so I'll just jump right into it and hope to get through it now in this one shot, but we'll see. So, they ask right off the bat, if the universal comes at the end, that is, the body without organs and desiring production, under the conditions determined by an apparently victorious capitalism, where do we find enough innocence for generating universal history? So a good question. So to kind of um, contextualize that a little bit more from what would have been discussed in the last chapter, um, the idea for them that the body without organs and desiring production marks a universal history is precisely because those two things uh, denote what they call reality or the real. So these are our absolutely true ontological condition and the institutions indicative of the law of which the Oedipal or the Oedipalization of psychoanalysis is a part all those things try to sequester this reality so they sequester the body without organs they sequester desiring production desiring machines and so on so keeping this in mind and uh, the idea that capitalism is what essentially gets us to this point. So this is very Marxist, right? So if we think of Marx in this way, uh, you have capitalism being almost the catalyst or a necessary medium by which, through which we must traverse before arriving at communism. So the same, I think, could be understood here, where capitalism is that thing that must be traversed through in order to arrive at this body without organs and desiring production. So, if that is truly the case, then can we claim there to be a kind of universal history? Because it certainly seems as though this hasn't always been, it's, it's not universal if we're waiting for it to come. You see, so therefore, uh, they kind of call into question even their, the axiomatic position that they're holding, that these things, that is the body without organs and desiring production or desiring machines, constitute reality as a universal unchanging thing. So this kind of sets the stage for what they're going to do in this chapter and look at the different developments throughout history, specifically kind of applying their ideas of the syntheses in accordance with broad historical movements. So to kind of reiterate what that, to kind of preface how they're going to get into that, they present a, present, presented us with three different syntheses in the previous chapter and they are as follows in this order. Connective synthesis or syntheses, disjunctive syntheses, and conjunctive syntheses. Now, these broadly correspond to three different movements throughout history. The first, connective syntheses, is related to the primitive or the archaic. So, this is the age of the territorial to some extent, where people were only determined by their kind of immediate uh, surroundings. They had to, you know, there's a cat, they had to feed off of the land, uh, and were bound by that to some extent. So there was a kind of, there's these parameters set. There was a limitation. Now that got, uh, I guess, issued for what they call disjunctive syntheses. So this is where deterritorialization first comes about. This is the moment that the, there arises a despot or a tyrant or something like that 
that says, you know what? We can organize this land in such a way as to make it productive so that we can accumulate a surplus, uh, so that we can essentially develop ourselves in more uh, efficient ways. So for more on this, it'd be good, I think, to check out the other videos I did, or there's no video, but audios I did with my friend uh, Curtis on the chapter Apparatus of Capture from A Thousand Plateaus in which Deleuze and Guattari expand on this a little bit more. But, you know, if you don't have the time, uh, that synthesis is where deterritorialization first comes in, but it's not a deterritorialization they really celebrate because it's a deterritorialization pushed by a kind of tyrannical figure that kind of rips up the land and then reappropriates it. So then we see the introduction of hierarchies and castes and all this type of stuff and class that is wholly oppressive, as, as we, should, I think, would be fair to say. So what supplants that synthesis is then the conjunctive one. So this, I think, you know, a hardcore... Uh, hardcore readers of this would might disagree with how I'm about to characterize it, but it's kind of like a blood, kind of a mesh or a mix of both a disjunctive and a connective synthesis. That is, what we see in the capitalist era is a simultaneous territorialization and deterritorialization. So where they say at one point, uh, capitalism deterritorializes with one hand what it territorializes with the other. So, for example... Uh, we might see a relative deterritorialization with the flows of capital because, you know, borders uh, don't mean very much when it comes to the flows of money. But then we see a certain kind of deterritorialization occurring in other forms that is uh, a more heavy-handed reliance on something like the family or the state or church or, you know, what have you that is almost like a, a weighted blanket. It's like a way for us to feel comfortable as though we haven't totally lost touch with our, our quote-unquote roots or things that, you know, attach us to this world. So, okay, I think that set the stage. Now let's jump right into it here. So they tell us that desiring production exists at the very beginning. So desiring production, and this is what they were getting at the whole time up until this point, uh, desiring production is, you know, what constitutes us as beings and is what, you know, allows possibility to even be possible. And that can be found as early as the beginning. So there was a kind of relative um, decoding occurring at that time. So a kind of freedom associated with that, those desiring machines and desiring productions. So then the example of the tyrant in the disjunctive synthesis is an example that... Um, codes or the tyrant overcodes um, the kind of uh, I don't want to use the term codes again but the conventions and rituals that you know may have existed pr prior and the, the tyrant kind of galvanizes them and solidifies them in in a kind of image form so that they can be easily reproduced and manipulated so then in this chapter like uh, tattoos serve this function where they act as like markings on a body that you know can't be undone so this speaks to the bigger project of what might be called a state or what they call here a socius in that the socius or the state is what inscribes codes that says you know follow x y and z parameters and you'll 
you'll be fine. You'll be able to fit within these these uh, guidelines. And we'll come to see that capitalism is actually a force that decodes those codes. And at the very beginning, so prior to this thing called the state that is this coding machine, we had what they call the uh, the sorry the earth or the body of the earth as being the primary zone for production. So production occurs between all things, between the the grass machine meets the tree machine or the root machine meets the you know bark machine or so on and so forth. So for them this is a territorial moment because there are these structures that are that emerge but and they are um, they have their own kind of principles, but they are not principles kind of inscribed upon them by an exterior other, kind of transcendent, tyrannical figure. So here they make a distinction. They say that this territorial moment shouldn't be confused with, a, with an idea of technical machines, which they say are like um, te technical machines that extend humans, like, uh, like um, glasses or like a cane or something like that. But instead, it is more aligned with uh, the social machine that has men for its parts. So this, and this is on page 141 in my edition. This distinction is important because it's not as though humans are masters of their of these spaces, right? At this time, in fact, humans are machines like any other. So the human is, um, uh, d uh, God, indiscernible from another machine like the grass machine or the root machine or the eye machine or you know go on forever here so they want to illustrate this in such a way as to kind of disturb the implicit subjectivity and autonomy uh, assumed of hum of humans so we shouldn't be uh, led astray here the idea of a social machine is doesn't imply that it is not or that it is kind of like a figurative or a metaphorical term that is it doesn't have anything to do with the real movements of, you know, these other machines, like the grass machine and the dirt machine. Sorry, I keep using that example, but it just keep, yeah. Uh, in fact, they say that these social machines are as real as any other. They serve the absolute purpose of kind of setting the basic codes required for syntheses to occur, that is, syntheses between two different uh, entities, or one of the examples they give at the beginning the uh, child mouth machine meeting the, the mother nipple machine. So then what we see in these territorial kind of primitive moments, or this primitive moment, uh, is the following. So the method of the primitive territorial machine is in the sense the collective investment of the organs, for flows are, co are coded only to the extent that the organs capable respectively of producing and breaking them are themselves encircled instituted as partial objects distributed on the socius and attached to it. So I think that this passage illustrates the extent to which there are um, codes present and that we shouldn't read in Deleuze and Guattari a kind of romantic exaltation of um, a pre-state configuration as though prior to the coding or overcoding indicative of the state, there are still codes and conventions that, you know, we should respect to some extent and treat not as though they weren't there, as though the pre-state configurations of society were somehow like a completely emancipatory, deterritorialized uh, framework. But what we don't see at this time, even though there are codes, 
is the code of Oedipus, which we'll kind of get into more, but they kind of tease us with this idea here, suggesting that it was it is with Oedipus, and especially its relationship to capitalism, where we see a kind of privatization of the various organs that comprise a, t- a territorial machine or a territorial framework. So when these things become private, then suddenly some of them can be imbued with a certain status that transcends the others. So we then we can then see the investment of the anus with a kind of psychoanalytic um, potential above that of, let's say, the finger or the eye or the ear or grass or trees, precisely because they hold some kind of significance not relevant to a universal conception of them, but to a specific one then that then projects that uh projects that faith in that organ onto other kinds of historical or, or, or epistemic frameworks. So one other way we could see the lack of universality of the um, various parts of the body imbued with a certain meaning uh, with under Oedipus is to look at the socius. Specifically, Deleuze and Guattari look at the ways that the body are, body are bodies are inscribed under the socius or in the state formations. So we see here markings and tattoos playing an integral role. And what these markings and tattoos show us is that the human is able to inscribe themselves with meaning that is you know, determined by the certain um, paradigm they find themselves in, the cultural and social one, that doesn't rely on some kind of universal appreciation of a single um, you know, bodily orifice. But they do not like the previous, uh, like the era that precedes this, that is the primitive territorial one, they don't look upon this with a lot of hope and, and um, you know, exaltation. Because they, following Nietzsche, don't, actually, sorry, they see the introduction of the socius and these kind of markings on the body as being the introduction of a kind of, um, of a cruelty that only the state is able to really perform onto bodies where people are told, you know, get in line or, you know, suffer the consequences. Don't be who you want to be, you know, follow the the ways of the state or how we'll tell you to be. So it's, it, I think it's important as well not to say like, oh, look, it was so much better then for Deleuze and Guattari, but instead to see it as uh, a way to apply a kind of, you know, epistemic comparison to our own time to trouble the supposed universality of Oedipus. So the transition from the uh, primitive to the despotic, or the barbaric as they say it, um, is, a, is a moment from territorialization, as I said, to deterritorialization, where there is a relative um, taking up of the earth and then redistributing it, redistributing it for the sake of caste and hierarchy. So as they say it, the body of the earth then gives way to the body of the despot. So in both of these systems, that is the primitive machine and the despotic machine, um, or the state machine, we see a kind of similar trend. So we still see codes being distributed, being disseminated, being um, kind of didactically imposed, but we don't see them happening in relation to this to the to Oedipus, as I've said. So this is an idea that I think they develop more uh, effectively in A Thousand Plateaus. 
where they make the case, and this is from the chapter Apparatus of Capture, they make the case that primitive machines, primitive formations, were not non-states. They were, in fact, states, but states by virtue of being anti-states. So they make the case that these primitive societies were not simply before the state. It's not as though these uh, these primitive organizations were uh, just waiting for the state to arrive. In fact, Deleuze and Guattari suggests that there are actually elements of the state that could be found within them. And because of this, they suggest that these primitive organizations actually internalize some of the logic of the state in order to ward it off, in order to exercise it. So there was then, for them, um, there's a kind of guiding thread between both the primitive and the state formations. So we shouldn't see these as being, you know, clear-cut breaks from one completely different epistemic framework into another. Rather, it's important to keep in mind that there are, um, there are similarities between the two. So that leads them to say that these primitive organizations are not outside of history. They are very much a part of the same history that we see developing, you know, today that can be stretched all the way back to, you know, 7,000, 12,000 BC. And this is how they can say that primitive organizations were riddled with organization. <laughs> primitive, primitive societies were riddled with organization. Essentially saying that they portend that is, they kind of set the stage for what would come to be understood in the state formations as, uh, as castes or hierarchies. So then at this point, they, take, they kind of throw a little um, teaser in here, uh, setting the stage for how they'll eventually get to this discussion about capitalism and these conjunctive flows or syntheses, where they say that the social machine, especially as it is made most manifest in the uh, despotic or state uh, formations, they say that it only survives by screwing up. It only survives because it isn't, uh, you know, as universal or as um, effective at organizing people and, you know, keeping those organizations happy as it proclaims it is. So this is why they can say that uh, this is why capitalism is so effective, precisely because it they say on 151, no one, has, no one has ever died from contradictions. In fact, it seems as though, and I think it really takes its lesson from the primitive organizations that I've uh, kind of characterized, that is, the ones that take in some of the logic of the thing they're trying to oppose in order to uh, ward it off. Following the logic, I think, here of, like, vaccination, where you... Um, insert some of a thing that threatens you so that you develop the defenses necessary to ward it off when it you know comes back in a more devastating form so that is why you can see capitalism and especially the social formations being so effective or being able to survive despite the contradictions is because they are always able to break down those uh, the limits posed in, in front of them and then set up new limits because it internalizes the logic of that which threatens it and, you know, puts that logic within it, like, you know, profiting off of punk rock or something like that, for example. 
So then they ask us, what role does incest play in the in all these formations, but kind of specifically in the transition from the primitive to the state formations? So they put this as follows, and I'll read this in length on 161. But what does it mean to say that incest is impossible? Isn't it possible to go to bed with one's sister or mother? And how do we dispense with the old argument? It must be possible since it is prohibited. The problem lies elsewhere. The possibility of incest would require both persons and names. Son, sister, mother, brother, father. Now in the incestuous act, we can have persons at our disposal, but they lose their names inasmuch as these names are inseparable from the prohibition that proscribes them as partners, or else the names subsist, and designate nothing more than pre-personal intensive states that could just as well extend to other persons, as when one calls his legitimate wife mama, or one's sister, his wife. So incest plays a really important role in the psychoanalytic imaginary, because it is that which has to be prohibited, right? So uh, in Oedipus, the idea is that, you know, the son wants to kill the father to fuck the mother. That is the incestuous dynamic, and one that has to be suppressed. It's it, And it has to be kind of um, come to terms with in order for that person to be an active or a properly active agent in that society. So Dodos Mutari, I think quite simply, are saying, you know, these lines of filiation so these kind of connections between people that share blood is rather arbitrary and the status that we ascribe them or the titles we do the ones that they give us here son sister mother brother father are random so one example is the prohibition that's still um kind of assumed of these relations if they come in like the step form step form so a stepmother and stepson or stepsister and stepson these things are still prohibited even though they occur just as you know incestuous relationships occur now that really points to the really arbitrary nature of these connections or these titles and the prohibition associated with them so as they say and this is on 160 um We must conclude that, strictly speaking, incest does not and cannot exist. We are always on this this side of incest, in a series of intensities that is ignorant of discernible persons, or else beyond incest, in an extension that recognizes them, that constitutes them, but that does not constitute them without rendering them impossible as sexual partners. One cannot commit incest only after a series of sorry, one can only commit incest only after a series of substitutions that always moves us away from it. That is to say, with a person who is equivalent to the mother or to the sister, only by virtue of not being either, she who is discernible as a possible spouse. So how one's a one, you know, the universal man one, but how someone's uh, partner isn't endowed with that same kind of status, even though they might be you know, you might be much closer with them than you are with any uh, family, um, you know, relation. And how it this fear, this prohibition is really, it really guides a lot of, you know, the way that we organize culture. So Foucault writes about this, right, in the history of sexuality, where he says that we have such a profound desire to kind of realize what is called this prohibition 
that we erect, you know, walls in the house, separate children from parents and children from other children, precisely because we know that everyone wants to be fucking everybody else. So we have to set up these kinds of limits. So, and this was, you know, one of the great Foucauldian insights. It's not as though the Victorians were non-sexual and they were puritanical people that didn't give a shit about sex. They were actually overly sexual and that all these institutions that only we can see, we don't see the people now, only the institutions that remain that point to us, you know, the barriers uh, are evidence of that for Foucault because they were necessary to kind of keep people from, you know, breaking the law the, or the prohibitions. So the repression that comes at the along with these prohibitions, you know, we shouldn't just say are was founded by Oedipus or by the psychoanalytic paradigm that has a very strong affinity with the family and the various titles and roles associated with that family. In fact, the territorial machine, that is the uh, connective one, the primitive one, uh, is comprised of three instances that give us kind of the hint of the presence of that to some extent there as well. So they say that it's comprised of three instances, that is the repressed representative, the repressing representation, and the displaced represented. So I should say that you know, these ideas aren't fully, or these instances aren't fully sifted out by the Lusingotari, so I'm, I am hesitant to give like a definition for them. But we can think of them, I think, safely and broadly as being instances of, as the, their titles suggest, a kind of represent or, or, or repression that is necessary for the being of any given uh, synthesis. So in order for the mouth machine to meet the nipple machine, there needs to be the basic foreclosure of other possibilities, i.e. the mouth machine meeting the apple machine, you know, in the act of eating or something like that. So there is something of a repression always already occurring. But this doesn't have to do with Oedipal repression. That is because, you know, the Oedipal repression simply says that this oppression has to do with lack that is the fear of losing one's penis because we're dealing with a kind of universal man here a child man uh, imposed by the father at the at, if you you know if the child wants to fuck the mother they're going to be met with the threat of castration which is a, a repression that is all too universal for them so what i think this what this also speaks to is the fact that they aren't opposed to all of the suggestions implicit to psychoanalysis, that is, discussions of the unconscious or repression or anything like that. But they want to say that these are, you know, uh, these are kind of um, not specific, but they are not universal in that they belong to various different syntheses that don't ascribe to a universal dictum and are instead, you know, in every single synthetic moment, synthetic, in every single synthesis, that presents a kind of complete total system in itself. Or as they say it, the primitive machines or primitive organizations are not eatable because they are in tune with the social field at hand. So they do not shy away from the specifics of a certain epistemic framework, but actually work within them. So for them, then, 
uh, primitive cures for ailments or problems or oppressions or anything like that are schizoanalysis in action, as they say on 167. So these primitive organizations are then effectively Oedipalized through colonization uh, as the um, kind of overt act of Oedipalization, but they are reduced to Oedipal frameworks by the imposition of the idea of the family onto them by saying that, you know, the types of alliances that we see here by the colonizer, the types of alliances that we see here, that is maybe alliances and, you know, it is reductive of me to frame it as follows, but just bear with me, um, between like tribe leader and, you know, the other, you know, priestly figure and so on and so forth, where people have their respective roles, uh, the colonizer comes in and says, no, you mean this person birthed you? They're therefore your mother. And this person was the the one that, uh, imp- quote unquote, impregnated the mother. That is then your father and you are the child and you are suffering from repression because of your desire to do this to your dad to then do that to your your mother. So there is the imposition of this idea onto these different frameworks, onto these different social fields that reduces them and then Oedipalizes them. So then they give us the wonderful passage, Oedipus is always colonization pursued by other means. So the Oedipal narrative is sold to people through two different ways. Through two different means. It's sold to people two different ways. The first being that it is a real event that comes about through heredity. So if the colonizer goes in and says that, you know, you were birthed from this person, therefore you, or birthed from these two people, therefore you have this hereditary connection to them. And because we can prove that you are, you know, in fact the child, there is a kind of affirmation of the initial postulate that there is a kind of hereditary formation there, and that therefore, because they imbue this hereditary relationship with such meaning, then the imposition or then the addition of the Oedipal narrative is that much easier to accept and that much easier to kind of project onto these people. So then the second way that it is sold to the to people is by having it structured as a structure. That is by having it be um, unquestionably neat because it is a, a, a mind-numbingly simple narrative that is the, the eatable one that, you know, Young boys have the desire to do this, and that is it. That's all. There's no more to it. We'll wipe our hands of it and, and be done with it. So what is at stake then is desiring production or desiring machines. So it would be wrong for us to think that Oedipus, you know, the, the Oedipal narrative, supposedly the way by which people become unrepressed, you know, Deleuze and Guattari say that that is a mode of repression because it reduces all cultures and peoples and social fields to a very specific universal phenomenon or universal narrative. So of this, they say that it would be wrong to think that people are what are repressed, but instead it is that desiring production, desiring machines that are repressed because all things are affected. So then all things are given over to or simply ignored by the Oedipal narrative. So all the machines that were at work before even humans arrived on the scene, that is all connections between different machines, 
like the tree machine and the leaf machine and the dog machine are then disavowed. They aren't considered part of the anthropocentric, that is human-centered narrative um, of the Oedipal complex, Oedipus complex, which is something they develop more in the in the fourth chapter. And the reason that desiring machines and desiring production are repressed is because they pose a threat to the Oedipal narrative. Because as soon as everything is, is inscribed with a kind of autonomous uh, subject position that has a that is a correlate of desire, that is desiring machines, then it throws the whole idea of desire being rooted in the, you know, the triangular formation between daddy, mommy, and, and son. It then opens up the door for new possibilities that the Oedipus, uh, the Oedipus complex refuses to acknowledge. So this is also what they call, that is, desiring machines are what they also call schizoflows. So schizophrenic flows that break down the walls imposed by Oedipus. The walls imposed almost by anything, by the codes present, present in the primitive uh, stage or the state stage or, or anything like that. So these schizoflows present what they call an absolute limit to any system. Specifically, they focus on the way that it, it, it is uh, an absolute limit to capitalism because it completely breaks down all the territories that are represented in under capitalism, which is something that they get to more uh, in, later in this chapter. So when we look or when the, Oedip the Oedipus person, the psychoanalyst, looks at uh, old structures or old social organizations and sees rites and rituals and um, symbols, fetishes, they see only Oedipus, right? How, you know, various objects are imbued with a certain meaning, and that meaning can always be reduced to the repression found in the family. So for Deleuze and Guattari, they say quite the opposite, that in fact, these symbols, these fetishes, or anything like that, are remnants of desiring production. That is, these things having their own autonomy and existing outside of the family relationship that forecloses their possibility. Or as they say on 183, symbols and fetishes are manifestations of desiring machines. But this is only the case if these symbols and fetishes are not given over to the jackals of what they call representation because representation is all too easily consumable by the all-seeing eye that is Oedipus. So when something is specific, when it is culturally grounded, it doesn't lend itself to the Oedipal narrative very easily. But if it is endowed with a kind of representative uh, affiliation, that is, it's kind of given over to, uh, it's rendered a consumable object by the Oedipal eyes, then it can be entered into that system. So this sets the stage for, and they develop this more in the fourth chapter, the idea that representation is opposed to desiring machines, where representation in the act of kind of galvanizing an image, concretizing it, it forecloses that thing's possibility. So it can no longer be the desiring machine that goes from 
you know, the nipple to the, the in the case of the mouth, to the nipple, to the food, to the chewing on grass, to the chewing on thumb machine, like so on and so forth. And it then simply becomes, well, you're in the uh, oral phase in the case of Oedipus. And it is by virtue of that, that we can explain X, Y, and Z or affirm the Oedipal narrative. So any narrative that it claims to be a universal one has something has been something that systems have opposed for a very long time. So these primitive organizations, while they still had codes and conventions that were present, would ward off these universal ones. So one way that they would do that would be in the case of exchange, where they, they say that um, these primitive societies would continually ward off or exercise the development of um, a kind of universal equivalent that is money that could be exchanged for anything else because as soon as that happens then we see a reduction of all things to this universal equivalent where there's not the kind of symbolic associations with that thing then diminish in favor of it being always associated with this universal equivalent and i believe the same can be said of the introduction of oedipus into the into the into the fold that is, all things can then be reduced to that. So then it's safe to say that the new state, one that is very comfortable with universal equivalence, uh, but through, you know, the introduction of paper money or money period, uh, the introduction of, um, you know, organized religion or, or anything like that, these states welcome that. And these new social formations welcome that because it makes it that much easier to control and redistribute people. So the new state formations formed under the rule of the despot uh, then opposes what the Guattari or how they characterize the primitive machine as being that of the lateral alliances and the extended filiations of the old community. That is where you see like what to us would seem as like primitive modes of organization with, you know, tribal priests or uh, other kind of shamanistic figures you know my ignorance of this matter is really shining through right here but i think maybe you get the point so the um the people that perform this act or or, um uh oh my god that do this for the state are the doctors priests and scribes that seek to impose no longer a territorial machine but rather a state mega machine. So under the mega machine, indicative of the state, there are three primary productions going on. There is the production synthesis, or sorry, there are three new syntheses going on, not productions. Uh, There is the production synthesis, that is the hydraulic machine and mining machine. We see the inscription synthesis, which is accounting, writing, and monument machines. And then third, we have the consumption synthesis, which is the upkeep of despot, court, and bureaucracy. That's on page 195. So the the state machine comes in to the primitive uh, system and says, you know what, we're done with this. We're going to enter this more organized phase. So that's one way to look at it. And that is part of the story, that the state comes from without. But as I mentioned earlier, there were components of the state found within these primitive systems. That is, organization could be found there. That's one example. So it also comes from within. That is, the state emerges from these primitive organizations. So whereas the primitive systems feared the development of the state, 
and internalize that logic to some extent. The state fears the decoded flows of capitalism, where we see uh, the kind of supposedly, we see the destruction of the various hierarchies that form or that allow for the state formation to develop. So they give one example of this in the case of China, where China closed its mines when enough resources were extracted from them because profit would then lend itself to expansion in a way that would make the state uh, incapable of ruling to the extent that it really wants to. So as I mentioned earlier, there were these various uh, kind of roles or people that did this, so the priests, scribes, and doctors. So Deleuze and Guattari expand on this more, suggesting that the introduction of graphism or writing served a very important role in the consolidation of the despot's power over primitive formations and over the new kind of state formation. So the despot introduced or mobilized the idea of um, writing and graphism, uh, whereas in the t territorial machine, there wasn't a subordination of, the, of writing over speech. You know, these two things existed in harmony to some extent. So the introduction of graphism gives, uh, interestingly, following Plato's uh, fear, kind of gives speech, or not following Plato's fear, but mirroring uh, kind of what Plato, or opposing Plato's fear. God, let me just say it. So Plato didn't like writing. Plato thought writing was going to be the end of memory, would be the end of the ability of one to reason, you know, so on. So the despot realizing this says, okay, let me introduce writing so that my word, you know, w when I speak, it is going to be superior to the writing that is suddenly everyone can do. So then what happens is all desire, uh, all desire then becomes the desire of the despot because it's only the despot's voice that rings through. So as they say, the mouth ceases to speak, it instead drinks the letter, and then the eye no longer sees, it instead reads the letter. So the signifier then is what they call the repressing representation. That is the, you know, the lack that's always presented by the signifier. How the signifier doesn't actually get you at the heart of the thing, but is just the kind of representation of that thing, not which opposes the, the so-called real world. So this kind of simulation we find ourselves in, that is one governed by signs as opposed to desiring machines or desiring production, is then mobilized by the despot in order to construct their own reality as being the reality that which everyone is supposed to follow. So this is the overcoding of the, of people and of culture, so that it becomes, you know, the only truth there is. And then in an ironic twist, Deleuze and Guattari suggest that this state formation, one that Oedipus is very comfortable with, um, then renders everyone to be incestuous because everyone is the children, uh, everyone are, everyone is the children of the despot. And as such, it is that much more difficult to exact any kind of um, opposition to the despotic narrative, where for them, in the age of the signifier and signified, uh, that is the writing and graphism introduced, the arbitrariness of the sign is attached to a universal signified, the despot, for instance, or in the case of Oedipus, the phallus. So then the only way that um, 
opposition is imagined is through rebellions or successions that are simply uh, that simply adopt the same the same logic, right? It becomes then a matter of um, of a group that opposes the system taking on you know the burden of the system, kind of wanting to be a part of it instead of moving towards a revolutionary paradigm. So this is goes back to the reform versus revolution type narrative. So in effect, then we see the introduction of what we know to be subjects because people are then subjected to a despot where the parameters are set forth for in their own little playground, their state form playground, where they are given a certain subjectivity to, um, to keep them distracted from the fact that they don't have uh, freedom, right? So subjectivity for freedom. So then what marks the end of the state? It is the introduction of private property. So if you have these subjects that, you know, are uh, essentially taking on that, that role of subjects and you see the development of a certain kind of a profit accumulating and the, you know, the trickle-down economics narrative, people are gaining a certain autonomy with this subjectivity, but do not be fooled, the subjectivity remains. So what you see is people entering a kind of what they call in a thousand plateaus, a kind of social subjection, where they are more or less free, but it is a freedom kind of bound by the limits of uh, the, the despot. The despot. So the deterritorialization found in the despotic state, where the despot takes up the land and then partitions it off, introducing hierarchy and caste and class, then turns on that very uh, that very state formation by breaking down the barriers, kind of deterritorializing de even that state formation. Where deterritorialization for Deleuze and Guattari appears with the overcoating performed by the despotic state. So the despotic machine is for them what they call quick, so it's synchronic. It's, uh, it comes and goes rather quickly, relatively. Whereas the capitalist machine for them is slow, diachronic because it is what has the potential to go on potentially forever, because it is the system that internalizes its contradictions and inoculates, that is, vaccinates itself from those contradictions or from those contradictions posing any real threat. So imminent to the logic of capitalism, that is within the logic of capitalism, is you know uh, an implicit breaking down of all barriers. So what they say is that in capitalism, surplus value of code becomes surplus value of flux. So it's not really a desire to um, instill conventions, but it is a desire to always keep the system in constant movement, to keep it in constant upheaval. So capital then is the only thing that presents a limit to capitalism, because if capital can't be attained, then capitalism will, will end. But as we have seen, especially with the Federal Reserve in the United States, they can just print capital. And even you know today, it's probably even more um, serious with how capital be has become such a, a an electronic phenomenon. Like it seems as though there can be no limit to the production of capital. Whether or not that we'll reach a bubble one day, who knows? If I had to guess, probably it may not be tomorrow, it may not be in a hundred years. But it doesn't seem as though this trend can go on forever, especially with, you know, so much speculative capital being accumulated. But, you know, that's, that's me. 
So at first glance, it may appear as though capitalism is something to appreciate, as though capitalism presents a kind of alternative that uh, is unlimited, right? Kind of the apotheosis, the the um, penultimate, the kind of climax of deterritorialization. Whereas they want to stress that that is not the case. They actually say that capitalism may provide the semblance of freedom, but it is not at all free. So they give the example of a rogue scientist that is off doing their own deterritorialized thing, and then at some point that rogue scientist will always be brought back into the fold. And they give that example on page 233. So capitalism is then a system completely opposed to production, but that is a system predicated entirely upon it. So it opposes desiring production, it opposes desiring machines, yet it is a system that relies very heavily on machines as we know them, and production as we know it. So this breaks with, while also complementing, the very ontological condition of the world, that is the reality of the world as being a world comprised of desiring machines and desiring production. So capitalism is really clever in that it appropriates that logic, but spins it for its own benefit. So then they give us a kind of quick quip suggesting that maybe our task is to accelerate capitalism, right? This is, I think, sets the, this is where a lot of accelerationists that use Deleuze and Guattari, you know, the kind of thing they draw from, the idea that capitalism is just something that must be sped up in order to arrive at this utopian potential. Which, I, I don't know, it's hard, like, they say that almost verbatim. Uh, so it's difficult not to read that in them. But I would like to stress that if it doesn't occur with the right kind of, you know, mind frame, then it will only present another oppressive system. So for more on this distinction between capitalism and schizophrenia, that would appear at first glance to have a kind of affinity, they say the following. This is on 245, and it's pretty long, so get at it. Yet it would be a serious error to consider the capitalist flows and the schizophrenic flows as identical under the general theme of a decoding of the flows of desire. Their affinity is great, to be sure. Everywhere capitalism sets in motion schizo flows that animate our arts and our sciences, just as they congeal into the production of our own sick, the, schizophrenic, the schizophrenics. We have seen that the relationship of schizophrenia to capitalism went far beyond problems of modes of a living environment, ideology, etc., and that it should be examined at the deepest level of one of the same economy, one and the same production process. Our society produces schizos the same way it produces Prell shampoo or Ford cars, the only difference being that the schizos are not sellable. How then does one explain the fact that capitalist production is constantly arresting the schizophrenic process? and transforming the subject of the process into a confined clinical entity, as though it saw in this process the image of its own death coming from within. Because the schizophrenic, I think, for Deleuze and Guattari, presents um, all the deterritorialization present in capitalism with none of the re-territorializations, what they call compensatory re-territorializations, which are necessary to kind of keep capitalism relatively tethered to something so that it can you know, still remain among the earth, or what they call the socius of the capitalist body. So capitalism is then what they call an axiomatic, or it introduces axioms that are these compensatory re-territorializations that serve as like limit points that it 
often circumvents and presents new ones. Uh, but they serve the per- do they serve this very purpose of maintaining some degree of the state within the capitalist formation. So this is then uh, the how we have both a kind of archaism that is the state and and futurism the kind of capitalism of always becoming of you know the deterritorialized flows of desire. So then Oedipus is very much among these capitalist conjunctions, these kind of capitalist flows. It serves as a, almost like a territory to convince us that we haven't you know totally lost sight of ourselves. So the familiar familial conjunction results from the capitalist conjunction. So uh, Oedipus arrives then via the flow of capital money. Because Oedipus wasn't on the scene in the old formations. It only existed uh, retroactively, you know, by having these armchair philosophers looking back and saying, oh, well, we can explain X, Y, and Z phenomena, be it literary or historical or whatever, because of now the, the fact that we've discovered this Oedipal uh, framework, this kind of Oedipal way to look at the world to explain everything for us. So then one more passage I'll read here that's long, but gets at the crux of exactly that. So this is on 266 and about Oedipus and capitalism. So Oedipus at last, in the end, it is a very simple operation, one that indeed readily lends itself to formalization, although it involves universal history. We have seen in what sense schizophrenia was the absolute limit of every society, inasmuch as it sets in motion decoded and deterritorialized flows that it restores to desiring production at the bounds of all social production, and capitalism the relative limit of every society, inasmuch as it axiomatizes the decoded flows and re-territorializes the deterritorialized flows. We have also seen that capitalism finds in schizophrenia its own exterior limit, which it is continually repelling and exercising, while capitalism itself produces its imminent limits, which it never ceases to displace and enlarge. And this imminent limit limit jumping down in the start of the next paragraph for whoever's following, Oedipus is this displaced or internalized limit where desire lets itself be caught, where uh, Oedipus forecloses desire from having any kind of revolutionary potential. Um, and yeah, the, I think that gets at the the essence of what they're trying to say in this this chapter that is presenting the very the broad movements of history pointing to the ways that Oedipus is not found in many of them, surprisingly, or unsurprisingly. Uh, and then how, you know, Oedipus arrives on the scene or has such a strong affinity with uh, capitalism or whatever system we can currently say we're in, uh, be it some kind of mutation of capitalism or capitalism proper, who knows. Uh, that's good then. I managed to get through it there. Uh, but for those that listened... Or, you know, saying bye is the hardest part. For those who listened, I hope you got something out of this. I hope I was clear. And I think I was pretty good with it. I I think I took them in their own words without bastardizing it too much. But I'll leave that up for you to decide if you actually listen to this. Uh, And if I did something wrong, you know how to, you know, tell me. I like hearing from you. And on that note, peace out.